Let's open our Bibles to Matthew. Our goal tonight is Matthew chapter 9 and 10. I'm so grateful that we have this to come to in these days when every day, you know, just the coming, I wanted, I left the house a little bit late because they're talking about this fault that runs through San Francisco. Maybe some of you caught it. And um, they're, they're sounding the alarms about this fault going right through this uh, stadium that it would split the stadium right in two. And they were saying it's not a matter of if, but when. It's going to happen. And it happens on a cycle of 150 years. And this is the 150th year, and they're starting to sense some of the, the, the shocks that were there. So, again, I think of... Um, I told Judy, I said, I'm expecting a, a birth pain, uh, where I think we're overdue for one. Even with all the stuff that's going on, that would be a major birth pain. And um, if you're unfamiliar with that terminology, that's what Jesus said. One of the signs in the last days, there would be earthquakes in diverse places, many different places. They had a little 5.41 down in Southern California last week. And... Um, so as we get into this here, with a world that's unstable, becoming more unstable, what we're going to see tonight, and that we're reminded again this evening, is this is not our home. Um, our, the Lord clearly said his kingdom is uh, coming, and that's what we're, our hope lies, not in the here and now, but we're to be about our Father's business until... The Lord calls his church home. Tonight we're going to have the Lord first time, for the first time explaining why when we get into the um, story of the, the wineskins, the old wineskins and the new wineskins. Um, remember, we have the advantage of hindsight as we look back on um, church history. Let me use the word because I'm going to use it later, uh, dispensation. A dispensation would be like all of the Old Testament being under the law. James 1 verse 17 says, The law came by Moses, but grace and truth. That's a new dispensation. You have the old dispensation, the law, came by Moses. Well, the new, when we get into the wineskins, the Lord is going to use that as an analogy, saying everything is different now. It was you were under the law. But now, John 1, 17, but grace and truth, the new wineskin, that he's introducing to a culture that that's all they've ever known. And now he's about to change all of that. As we get into 9, it's a continuation of chapter 8. Chapter 8, last week, um, uh, last time we were in uh, chapter 8, we talked about six miracles. And now in chapter 9, there are six more miracles, so a total of 12 altogether. 12, after studying today, it seems to be the number because it's going to come up not only with this, but with the little girl who we're going to find out is 12 years old. We have the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years. And um, I just find that interesting that 12 is repeated four different times. So as you look at, we're just going to read verse 1 and of chapter 9. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Now, there should be a continuation, if you go back to chapter 8, picking it up in verse 33, we have um, the two men that were demon-possessed that begged to be cast into the pigs or the swine. That's in chapter 8, verse 33. Then those who kept them fled, and they went into their city and told everything, including what happened to the demon-possessed men. Now, these are the people that were previously scared to death of these two demon-possessed guys. But now they come and they see they're normal, and they're, um, in verse 34, they were afraid of the power that Jesus had. So in verse 34, Behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus when they saw him. They begged him to depart from their region. Okay, now the so. First verse of chapter 9. So, he got into his boat. What does that tell us? Well, 
The land of the Gadarenes is in the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. And so it's not much of a boat ride to go from where he was to his city, which would have been Capernaum. A couple miles at the most from where he was to where he was going back to. So when we read verse 1, and it tells us, We know where he's departing from. It would have been the land of the Gadarenes where the two demon-possessed men were. And he crossed back over to his own city, which had been Capernaum, which is the Lord's headquarters. So in the previous chapter, 8, we had the six miracles. And um, we're going to see in this chapter tonight one more incident of a man demon-possessed. So now in verses 2 through 8, And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and Jesus, seeing their face, said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within himself, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think it evil in your hearts? For what's easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? He's giving them a question. What's what's harder to say? Is it harder to say, your sins are forgiven? Well, how do you know? Or get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your home. And so he arose and departed to his house, Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. I'm going to to get the full picture here, and I'll be making this point over and over again as we go through the Gospels. Go to Mark chapter 2, and we'll have the complete story, uh, picking up in verse 1. So again, as he entered Capernaum, then now we know his own city. After some days, it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately they gathered together, and there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. So here's the Lord in um, one of the homes in Capernaum. But the word is out on, on the Lord, and everybody wants in. And you can't even get close to the house. And he preached the word to them, Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us this, but Mark does. So he has four buddies. They want to get to Jesus, but they can't because of the crowds. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken through, talk about disrupting a Bible study, (laughs) They let him down in a bed. I'd love to have seen this. You know, Jesus is in the middle of teaching. All of a sudden, the roof opens up. And here's this guy coming down on his ropes because his buddy knew that if they could just get him to Jesus, their friend would walk again. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And whenever I read this, if I'm one of the friends, I'm thinking that's not why we're here. Now we want our friend to walk again, and you're talking about forgiving him his sins. And um, But some of the scribes, so this is more uh, information from Matthew, but some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Yeah, that's the point. This is a point that Jesus is wanting to make that only God can forgive sins. He makes sin the issue, but then to prove it, he says, which is harder to say? Your sins are forgiven or arise up and walk? Well, you never know. You can say your sins are forgiven, but how do you know they are? How do you know they're not? But just to prove that what I said is true, he looks at the guy who his buddies had let down and tells them, um, In verse 9, what is easier to say to the paralytic, which I just said, your sins forgive you or arise, but that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go 
to your house. And immediately. Uh, this is um, Mark's gospel is probably, it's really Peter's. Mark penned it down. And the reoccurring word all, through, all the way through the book of Mark. Mark is the short of, shortest of the gospels. And it's quick and to the point. And the word immediately is throughout Mark's gospel. And immediately he rose, took up the bed, went out into the presence of them all. So they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. I bet they hadn't. And um, the better part of, of the healing was, yes, he was healed. But, but more importantly, the Lord forgave that man his sin. All right, let's go back. We're just going to look at Matthew 9, just one verse. Verse 9, we have the calling of Matthew. And again, we're going to have to get a bigger picture by going back to Mark. Then as he passed on from there, he saw a man whose name was Matthew. So now Matthew is writing about himself. Sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Matthew evidently doesn't want to talk much about himself, so he gives himself a one-liner, one verse. You have to go to Mark to get a completer, a more complete picture of what's taking place here, so back to Mark. Yeah, verse two, Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitudes came to him, and he taught them. And as he had passed by, he saw Levi. Now this is Matthew, but here he's called Levi the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining at Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. So now here's Levi's buddies, other tax collectors, which were despised and hated by the Jewish people, a tax collector would have made his money by getting as much as he could. There was so much that would be gathered for Rome uh, that was required. Their pay was up and above and beyond what they could get. So they were despised and hated by everybody. And now Jesus is hanging with all these um, tax collectors that the Jews despise. And when the, verse 16, and when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I do not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Now this is going to be in stark contrast to his forerunner, John the Baptist. <clears throat> Um, John would not have done this. And when we read where John actually doubts that the one he said, there's the Lamb of God who takes the sin away the sins of the world, John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus, doubted. Go ask Jesus if he's really the Messiah or should we be looking for somebody else? So Jesus sends a message back to John he says, go tell John this. He says, the lame walk, the blind see, the gospel's preached to the poor. Oh yeah, and tell him this too. And blessed is he who's not offended by me. John the Baptist offended? Yeah. John the Baptist had the vow of a Nazarite. And that would have meant he would have grown his hair long. He couldn't eat grapes, much less wine. And here's Jesus sitting down with tax collectors eating and drinking, and it offends John. It doesn't tell us that John is openly offended, but Jesus clearly said to him, and blessed is he who is not offended in me, John. Dart to the heart. Nobody knew that John was offended except Jesus. And so, yes, the lame walk, yes, the blind see, tell John that. That's um, Isaiah being fulfilled there. But the offense part, nobody knew anything about that. Only John did. Because, got it, Lord. Because you know that I am offended. All right, let's go back to Matthew. We left off 9, verse 9. So Matthew evidently doesn't like 
uh, to talk too much about himself here, so he gives himself one verse. Mark fills in the gaps. We find out that he's, his name is Levi, and all of his buddies are tax collectors, and Jesus goes and has supper with, the, with them. Now 10 through 13. And so it was as Jesus sat at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? If you were a Pharisee walking down the street and you had your long garment on and you saw a tax collector coming with you in a crowd, they would take their cloaks and wrap them around them and go around them lest they would be touched by a tax collector and be therefore be defiled and have to go through this whole ritual of cleansing because they were not allowed to even uh, touch, much less sit down and have a meal. With um, um, and This is why it brings up the question here. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Talk about the height of hypocrisy and religiosity. Um, one of the reasons that um, we dress down in the world, that there's churches that are called high churches and churches that are called low churches. Calvary Chapel fits into the low category churches. It doesn't mean anything more than a higher church would be where people all come dressed up, three-piece suit, and there's nothing wrong with that. And we just call it a, a high-end social church. On the other end of it, we purposely dress down so that the impression that Chuck always said, we, don't, we, we, we want to project, even from the pulpit, that we're no different than anybody else. If I put on a robe right now, or a collar, what am I projecting? Just that. I'm different. And um, as a result of, of just the outward appearance. And he uh, tells him in verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So all that to say this. We are here in a Wednesday night Bible study. To do what? Well, I'm a pastor teacher. My job, according to Ephesians 4, is to equip you by teaching this to do the work of ministry. You see, the mission field is out there. And, um, you know, there's so many churches, they preach the gospel every Sunday morning, but they're preaching to people who are already saved. Now, granted, there will always be a visitor who comes in who's not born again. And um, we understand that. But the majority of you don't need to hear an evangelical message every Sunday. What you need is to be equipped. And then when we get in chapter 10 tonight, there is a lot of equipping on how we live as Christians. This is still establishing Jesus' authority with miracles in 8 and 9. So here, um, what we want to glean from these verses is you need to feel comfortable with your unsaved friends. And, and um, yes, there's a balance. Here's the litmus test that I always tell people when it comes to um, hanging with people who aren't saved. And here's the litmus test. And it boils down to who's influencing who. If you're at a place where you can hang with non-believers and they're not an influence to you, then you should be there because you need to be the influence to them. On the other hand, if you're a young Christian, this is what I tell them. Come out from among them and be separate and I'll receive you, says the Lord. There needs to be that period of time when they just get saved that they get some spiritual meat on their bones. We call it getting rooted and grounded. So that when they go hang with their own buddies, their old buddies, they don't drag you back into the world. So what's the litmus test? Well, it all depends. Who's influencing who? When you're hanging with unbelieving friends, do they know where you're at? Do they know you're a Christian? And um, are you waiting for your opportunity to get the foot in the door, so to speak? 
And sometimes the Lord opens the door and you get to share your testimony or, or whatever, and sometimes you don't. But for new believers, I tell them, look, take a year off. Just come to church and um, um, let, let the old life go, including your old friends, for a season of time. Until when? Until you're strong enough to be an influence that they're not going to drag you back, but they're going to see the change in your life, and you go, you're really different. You're not the same person you used to be. So, um, obviously, the, the Pharisees here, that wasn't their mentality. Jesus, of course, I think is Zacchaeus, you know. And the same ballpark was a Jew who gets uh, radically saved. And um, Jesus has supper with him. And during supper, Zacchaeus gets saved. And he comes out, as a, and he says, if I've, as a tax collector, he says, if I ripped anybody off, uh, the law said, if you rip somebody off, you've got to give them back twice as much. Well, Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give you four times as much. And he doubled it. And at the end of the conversation, those that were criticizing the Lord for having a meal with Zacchaeus, he said, you guys should be happy because here's a, here's a, a child of Abraham. He's one of us, and he's come to salvation. So you guys should be happy. All right, let's leave that. Um, Jesus is quoting this last verse 13 here. And we, I want to point this out. Every time there's an Old Testament verse that's fulfilled in the New Testament, we find it. Full, here's one in verse 13. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That is Hosea chapter 6. If you're taking notes, Hosea 6, verse 6. It's a prophecy um, that the Lord would fulfill, and it's being fulfilled right here. That the Lord desires mercy and not sacrifice. You don't have to turn to this, but Paul uh, in 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Comma, and then he says, of whom I am chief. Whoa. The Apostle Paul said that he was the chiefest of sinners? Yeah. Not in the beginning. Remember, he started out killing Christians. And the, the longer that Paul was with the Lord, and he really didn't start his ministry for 14 years. He was in the desert three years uh, with the Lord just getting... His, his own rooting and grounding. And it wasn't until um, 14 years later that he was actually started his ministry. A lot of people don't realize that. Now, this would have been many years later. And Timothy would have been um, sort of a, a disciple of Paul. Now, in verses 14 and 15, it deals with a question about fasting. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? So John the Baptist's disciples were fasting, but your, your disciples, they don't. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Well, when it gets to fasting, we'll talk about it just a little bit. <clears throat> Uh, fasting has um, a lot of value. Basically, when you boil it down, it's denying the appetites of the flesh for a given period of time so that your flesh actually becomes weaker so that you can give yourself to prayer. Uh, an example of this would be 1 Corinthians 7, where it talks about husbands and wives being intimate together and don't stop being intimate together unless you make an agreement to do a certain amount of time so you can give yourself to prayer and fasting. Well, intimacy is a, is a pleasurable act, and you're denying yourself of that. But then he says, after you, you've uh, done your prayer and fasting, 
then come back together unless the devil would tempt you. So there's times and places for fasting. But when you search the scriptures, <clears throat> um, um, there's no commandment in the New Testament to fast. Uh, we're told um, as far as things that we do because we're saved, one would be um, believer's baptism. After you get saved, the Lord says be baptized. And um, the other one would be what we do once a month, and that is remembering that Jesus died on a cross, and we have communion. And he says, do this as as often as you do it. It doesn't say just do it first Sunday of the month. You can do it whenever you want to. But whenever you do it, it is in remembering what the main thing is all about. It's about what Jesus did on the cross and not what we can do. Good place for an amen. So here, fasting, when it gets to fasting, the Lord doesn't say uh, you should fast so many times a year or whatever. There's no instruction about that. But um, when big decisions are needed and you need to hear from the Lord, and it's got to be the Lord. I'm not doing anything, Lord, until I hear from you. And I'm not hearing from you, so I need to do a little prayer and fasting and take this a little bit more seriously. But as far as a requirement, I don't find it in the New Testament. But it's something that he says they will do after he's gone. Now, in verses 16 and 17... Um, he, he goes and he says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, here we're looking and listening and explaining the changes, remember I use the word, of the dispensational change from the law, which would have been all the Old Testament. So that's many, many years of just doing thing, things one way. And whenever you do things only one way for thousands of years, that groove gets pretty deep. Now the Lord's going to take it, and he calls it here a new wineskin. It has to be completely new. You can't take from the old and put them both together. They have to be completely separate. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. What's he talking about? Again, if you're taking notes, John 1, verse 17, the law came by Moses. That's one dispensation. It's an old wineskin. The new dispensation, the new commandment I give you, and he's going to change everything, including the priesthood. All of the book of Hebrews is written to Jews explaining why there's only needs to be one sacrifice when they're used to doing sacrifices on a daily basis. And morning, noon, and evening prayers, that was their routine. But Jesus says now in the New Testament, pray without ceasing. Pray all the time, not in a specific place. Um, and so when we're talking about here what we have in mind, these new wineskins, is the Lord is instituting something that is under grace versus the law. And you can't have the two intertwined. They're mutually exclusive. One makes the other one go away. It's like light and darkness. They can't coexist together. You can't have the law and you can't have grace. It's either law or it's grace. Another place, good place for an amen. And gang, when you get, when you understand this, this is really, again, um, I think what sets a person free when they realize they can't add anything to it. Disciples wanted to know, Lord, what can we do to do the works of God? And Jesus just looked at him and says, this is the work of God that you believe in him who the Father has sent. That's your job. That's it. That's it. Now, because of that, there's things that are going to happen. You're naturally going to produce Good works. Faith without works is dead. But I'm not saved because of my works. I do good works because I'm saved. Everybody got that? But that's so different from what so many believe in the world today. 
that you have to be a part of doing this good work in order to deserve or earn your salvation. So this deal with the wineskins here is simply an illustration that Jesus is explaining something old is passing away and I can't put grace into law. I can't be done. It'll break. And so that's what I believe the Lord is speaking about here. Now, when we get to verses 18 to 26, um, we have a woman who's um, is going to be healed and a child who's going to be raised from the dead. This, this will be, if you're taking notes, um, miracle 8 and 9. Um, both are miracles of healing, and let's, we're going to also have to go to Luke to get more information on this, but let's read, first of all, um, verse 18. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And then suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood, notice for 12 years, came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I know I'll be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, they saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. And he said to them, Make room for the girl's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they began to mock Jesus to scorn. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. Uh, Complete picture, we need to go to Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. More information about this event. And some, I think, important, I've never seen it before. That's what I like about going through the Bible over and over again. Seeing things you've never seen before. So, Luke 8, verse 41, we have the ruler's name. Behold, there was a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. We didn't know that from Matthew's account. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter about 12 years of age. Well, Matthew doesn't tell us that. So now we got a woman who's got an issue with blood for 12 years. And now we got another little girl who's 12 years of age and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him, and a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians. Matthew doesn't tell us that. She's broke. She spent it all on, on doctors and nobody could heal her came from behind him and touched the hem of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. Well, again, we don't doesn't have, in Matthew's account, it says, in that hour she was healed. Evidently, here there's more clarification. It was healed immediately. And Jesus said, who touched me? That's not in Matthew's. But all denied it. Peter and those with him said, Master, are you kidding the multitude throngs around you, and you want to know who touched you? And Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. Well, all Matthew tells us is that Jesus turned around and said, Don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. Your, your faith has made you well. But again, the importance of getting a complete picture with all the Gospels. She came trembling, falling before him. She declared to him, in the presence of all the people, the reason she had touched him, and now she was healed immediately. And then he says to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Let's go back to uh, Matthew 9. And we have these two miracles, and I can't, you know, 
it gives me pause to stop and wonder about uh, the number 12 here. Because what's going to happen before we're through here is we're going to have 12 disciples who are going to go from being men that Jesus called as disciples, but they turn into apostles. And we'll talk about apostles in just a bit. But let's go to the next miracle in verse 27 through 31. This will be the 10th miracle. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, Matthew is writing um, from a Jewish perspective. He's the Levi. And his message is primarily to the Jewish people. So the title here, Son of David, is important. It carries back the idea that he is the promise that God made to David of the kingdom. And here he calls him son of, they call Jesus the son of David. And when he had come into the house, a blind man came to him and said to him, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly, I want to emphasize that, sternly. Imagine Jesus being stern. We have such a misconception about the Lord, and it's primarily where we're going on Sunday. Um, And because people don't study their Bible like like they should, they they just have this loving, always loving image of Jesus, that he would rebuke anybody is unthinkable much less have the audacity to say you've got to love me more than anything or anybody, period. And here, sternly, is what I would underline, warn them, don't tell anybody. Now, that's a tough one. I mean, if I didn't see my whole life and all of a sudden I could see, when I'm supposed, how am I supposed to keep that <laughs> under wraps? But when they departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. Um, just a little rabbit trail here. Jesus healed more than this, these two blind men. In John 9, verse 11, there was a blind man who wanted to be healed. A man called Jesus, he's explaining how he's healed. He says he made clay. In other words, he spit in the mud. Sticks it in the guy's eye. And he says, now go down to the pool of Siloam and wash it out. So he's making his way down there. He's not seeing yet. And we'll, the pool of Siloam is at the bottom end of the, the city of David. It's only been the last 14, I think, years that they even discovered it. And um, we have a, a Bible study down there. And this is an A spot. This is the pool of Siloam. And he said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and I received my sight. So here, the Lord just touches in this chapter here, um, these two guys and their their sight comes immediately. So what's the big deal? Why does the Lord spit on the ground, make mud, stick it in the guy's eye and say, go down to the pool of Siloam and and wash it out? And the only answer that I have for that is God can do what he wants, when he wants, any way he wants, and so that we don't come up with some pattern. Ah, this is how he does it. No, because as soon as you start following a pattern that Jesus did it this way, he breaks the mold, and he does something completely different. And um, whenever I teach on this, I simply say, you cannot put God in a box. Good place for an amen. He He can do it or he can choose not to do it, like in Paul's case with the thorn in the flesh. He could have removed Paul's thorn in the flesh. He says, no, not going to. My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. You just went to heaven. You can get really big-headed about that. You need, to, you need this thorn to keep you humble so that I can still use you. Um, so these, these verses here, um, the Lord healed uh, differently, I believe, so that um, we can't put them into a box. 
verse 32 um, is the 11th miracle. This is the third time in our, our chapters uh, 8 through 9 where we're going to see Jesus dealing and showing his authority over the demonic realm. So in verse uh, 32, as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. Okay, he couldn't speak. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons, Belzebub. And um, uh, we have uh, a man who had, had a speech impediment. Uh, yeah, I haven't told that story in a long time, Lord. <laughs> My grandma Crandall lived to be 100 years old. Farm girl. Um, good genes. She cooked her eggs in bacon grease. And then when it came time to put milk on her cereal, she would skim it off the top of the milk cans. And that was every day, so she had no problems with her cholesterol or anything like that. But she had such a speech impediment. My mom tells the story when mom was alive. She stuttered so bad. You would is that bad? And um, uh, she was going to the church. Was a Lutheran church, and um, she asked for prayer that she would be healed of this. And my my grandma wasn't real knowledgeable with scriptures, but she was a woman strong in faith. Now my other grandma Shulo. She knew the word like the back of her hand. They, they read their Bible every single night. And, but my grandma Crandall, well, she was just a farm girl, not a very good knowledge of, of the word, but she had a lot of faith. And the pastor said, I'll pray for you that, that God will heal you. Well, I don't think the pastor had any faith at all. I don't know, but I know my grandma did. She never stuttered or stammered a word after she left the place ever again. And so the idea of speech impediment and, um, you know, people will tell me stories about this happened to them and they were healed and, and I go, well, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But when it's my grandma and she's telling me the story, it happened because <laughs> I know my grandma. I could tell a lot of stories about my grandma in Supernatural because she had more, more than one more than one experience with, with the Lord. But here, um, this impediment involved demonic spirits. And, you know, you can, never, you can never tell what is a physical ailment or a demon possession. And in this case, the Lord is clearly saying that the demon had something to do with the speech impediment. And the Lord cast out the demon and the, the person who couldn't speak now is speaking. <clears throat> and the multitudes marveled, saying, it's never been like this in Israel. We've never seen anything like this before. And the Pharisees said, well, he can only do that because um, he himself is casting out the demons by the king of the demons, Belzebub. Later, Jesus would address this argument, and he said, that doesn't make any sense at all. He says, the house divided won't stand. Why would the Satan cast out Satan? He's fighting against himself. That doesn't make any sense. So we have here uh, in this, uh, this miracle, and then in verses 35 through 38, uh, we, we capture... One of the reasons why the Lord was telling people not to say anything. He had compassion. He wanted to reach as many people as he could. But if everybody's going around telling about their miracles, the crowds are just getting bigger, and it's hindering him from becoming more effective. And that's how we end chapter 9. 35, and Jesus went about all the cities and villages, 
teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. I mean, we're having compassion right now on Robbins. <laughs> My wife is out shopping today because she was getting this platter together for the Robbins who can't get to, um, they're confused. I looked at this, I actually looked at a Robin and this Robin was confused. <laughs> it was in a sidewalk covered by snowbanks on this side. Look at this side, looking that way, looking this way. He didn't know what to do. And so maybe you've seen on TV, you can, you can actually go and, and get for your bird feeder some fruits and some dried worms or something. I don't know. And, uh, um, some of them are dying. And if we have compassion on, on birds, you know, how much more should our compassion be for people who are lost sheep? And they don't have a clue. They don't even know they're lost. They don't even know they need to be saved. And that's why, again, chapter by chapter, verse by verse teaching is vital. You don't, um, you could come up um, by leaning upon your own understanding when it comes to salvation. A lot of people do. And he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. He's now in the equipping stage. And when we go from chapter 9 to chapter 10, we leave off now with the 12 miracles. Six in chapter 8, six in chapter 9. And now, the very miracles that we've been observing in these last two chapters, he's now going to impart upon his disciples. Before he does that, the first four verses, what we have as we enter this chapter, um, we find the calling of the disciples. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. Now the name of the 12 apostles. Okay, this is the first place where we go from a disciple to an apostle. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. He calls his disciples, and now the names of the 12 apostles. Now this is important for you to pick up on. Um, I guess I could do it now. I I want you guys to see this. So let's turn to Revelation 21, verse 14. I could quote it, but I want you to turn, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21. I want to talk about apostles for a little bit here. Chapter 21, verse 14. It's a description of the New Jerusalem. And it talks about its dimensions. And um, in verse 14, It says, now the walls of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, let's go back and read the names of the apostles, and we'll talk a little bit about apostles. Verse 2, the name of the 12 apostles, the first, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. We know he is David's Levi. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Libius, whose surname was Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. Now, we know that Jesus said concerning Judas, when he betrayed him, it would be better that he would never even have been born than to be the one who betrayed the Lord. Before Peter is baptized in the Holy Spirit, um, he quotes a scripture from the Old Testament that I don't believe was being led by the Lord. They pick a couple guys, they, they draw straws, and they say, okay, you're going to be the guy that takes Judas's place. You never hear that um, disciple again. Paul, in his epistles, 
will address his letter, Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be to you. So Paul is an apostle, and there's only 12 of them. I do not believe that there are apostles today. When we read in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is writing that. And so he can say, are all apostles? And the answer is no. Do all have the gift of healings? No. But he could say that in 1 Corinthians 12 because he was still one of the apostles who was still alive. And so were some of the other apostles. So my two cents worth or two shekels worth on this, there are only 12 apostles and um, they were empowered uh, by the Lord. Um, and I do not believe that there are apostles today. There's only 12 of them. I believe you had to be an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus to qualify. And so here we have the names of them. Judas is scratched out, etch in Paul, because we know for sure that Paul was an apostle. These 12, uh, now the instructions, and the rest of this chapter is going to go quicker, and I'm going to deal more thoroughly with it this Sunday morning. Now these 12, Jesus uh, sent out and commanded them, saying, Now do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, in other words, that the Lord is here, he is the kingdom. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Uh, I'm grieved today as I look at the church when I hear of some of the gimmicks and how churches are raising money. Peter talks about making merchandise out of sheep. In other, words, in other words, looking at them and how can I get money from them? And it's across the board and it's a plague in the church today. Now having said that, this Sunday, we're going to take a special love offering. We don't do it often, but we do do it. And it's with the idea, when we have our pastor's conference, that we can invite people from around the country, and when they say, how much is it, we can say, free. And I want to be able to say that, you know, Calvary Appleton will take care of the traveling expenses and the hotel rooms and the meals. But nonetheless, it's an expense. So it's something that we throw out to you. It'll be one of the times you'll actually, you'll hear me ask for money. It's not for me, it's for... Uh, those that are coming so that they can, you know, we, we put them up in a nice hotel, we feed them, and, um, and we want to be able to take care of them. And that actually takes money. But the idea here is so that we can offer it freely, so that people don't come. Uh, I told the story before how much time I got. I don't have much time. <laughs> 25, 30 years ago, uh, the Ministerial Fellowship had our first major outreach to the community, Lowell Lundstrom. How many of you remember Lowell Lundstrom? you got to be pretty old to remember Lowell Lundstrom. <laughs> He's got a church up in the Twin Cities. But he insisted on having a fundraiser before he came in. So we had a meal at a local hotel. And um, and I'd never seen it. I'd heard stuff. Chuck. I heard Chuck, Chuck tell stories like this. And he says, if, you, if you're live long enough, you'll see certain things come full circle, how people will manipulate you. And so at the end of the night, Lowell Lundstrom gets up and he goes, now there's um, uh, there's um, five people here, five people in the audience that, uh, um, that um, the Lord is telling me that uh, you're to give $500 a piece. So five people, $500 a piece. And he says, you know who you are, just raise your hand. And um, three or four people would raise their hand, and he says, well, there's two more of you that are, are resisting the Lord, and we aren't going anywhere. And sure enough, he'd get his hands. And he, he worked it from $1,000 down to 10 bucks. I don't know. 
But he raised a lot of money. But it was, I was grieved to the core. It was complete manipulation of the people. And they were putting them in a situation where you cannot say freely, you have received. Freely give. And it's a plague and a blight in the church today. And I see it all, all too often. Now, there's a place for tithing. There's a place for giving. And what does the Bible say to it? Well, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And that's between you and the Lord. Actually, the word is hilarious. So the Lord loves a hilarious giver. So that's my speech on money tonight. Let's go back and finish as much of this as we can. But <clears throat> this whole idea of freely, uh, freely you've been given, so freely give. Um, verse 9, provide neither gold nor silver or copper in your money belts nor bags for your journey, nor two tunics nor sandals nor staff, for a worker is worthy of his food. Whatever city or town you enter, inquire who is worthy and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Because these disciples came in doing the supernatural. The Lord tells us here, he gave them power. So they go into a community. They demonstrate that they've been sent out by Jesus um, to heal the sick, the lepers, whatever, cast out demons. And if they blow that off and blow you off, then you just walk away and go somewhere else. And then he said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Um, I love this saying here. In other words, be tactful when you're fishing. Be wise as a serpent. Um, Paul says, I've learned to become all things to all men. Um, I've learned to get people to ask questions rather than me just preach at them. Some people are good yakkers, and they'll, they'll witness, 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 and can't, they don't come up for air for two hours. <laughs> and the person there isn't asking questions. And um, a tactful person is one who's wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. He says, but beware of men, for they will deliver you to the council and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about what you're going to speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. Remember Nehemiah having to go before King Artaxerxes? And King Artaxerxes is upset because he sees that Nehemiah is sad. And uh, he calls him out. And Nehemiah, when he said, the king said to Nehemiah, what do you want? He said, so I made my prayer and said to the king. He was praying and talking at the same, talking to the Lord this way and talking to King Artaxerxes at the same time. So he wasn't given, I bring it, make the point only to say, don't worry about what you're going to say. Because the Lord will give you the right words at the right time. For it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of the Father who speaks in you. Last week was weird for me, because the Lord usually speaks to me. No, not usually. Every week he speaks to me, about Sunday morning. And nothing was happening. And then we get this major snowstorm. And there's no way anybody's doing anything on Sunday. And now I realize why I didn't, the Lord didn't give any, anything for Sunday, because it wasn't going to be anything Sunday. I let Chris Quintanic come up and we plugged him in from California and did uh, one, one conference from a couple of years ago. And um, this, is, this is true. The, for the Spirit will speak to you. I want to be able to say that which I've received from the Lord, I give to you. And I want our Bible studies to be fresh, home-cooked meals, so to speak. 
and not regurgitated, not pre-digested thoughts, but something that really comes from the Lord. And um, I have Sunday study already done. Got it yesterday morning. Or was it this morning? I don't remember. I just sat there, just took notes. So I have the whole outline. It'll, it'll take me hours to put it all together, but I know what it's supposed to be about. So that's what this is talking about here. Now, brother, will be... Uh, deliver you up to death and your father, his children, and children will be rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. All because of the gospel. And you will be hated by all of my, for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Well, I don't like being hated. How about you? You like being hated? No, we like being liked, right? Well, you, this is part of counting the cost, that we need to be honest with people. Look, if you're really going to be a Christian, People are going to hate you. Or when you tell them you can't get to heaven by doing good works because there's nothing good within you. <laughs> Who likes to hear there's nothing good within them? And yet it's exactly what the... Well, I let my heart lead me. That's too bad. The Bible says your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Do you like hearing that? No. Is it true? Yes. <laughs> So that's why you're hated. But when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he will be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If if they have called the master of the house Belzebub, and this is what they just did when Jesus cast out the demon. Oh, you're Belzebub casting out the demons. If they're saying that about Jesus, how much more will they say that of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, uh, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. And whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And whatever you hear in the ear, preach it on the housetop. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And if one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but very hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, um, this makes me think of um, Psalm 139, where the Lord's thoughts towards you are more than the sands of the sea. I take that literally. Well, that's impossible. No, it's not. God has always been. He always will be. And he knew you and had all your days planned out before the foundation of this world was ever laid. That's how it's possible that his thoughts towards you are more than the sands of the sea. Do not fear, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Here's the door that swings both ways. So never be afraid or ashamed. I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And I want to be open about that, that you know who I am and what I believe. In the back of my head, I'm saying, Lord, you said if I confess before men, someday it's my name before the Father. I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before man, him I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I'm not going to expound on this because my time is running out. This is my, where we're headed on Sunday. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies or foes will be those of his own household. And he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And he who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. And he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. 
And whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, surely I say to you, you shall in no means lose your reward. What I read through quickly, um, I'm going to use as our text for Sunday. So let's stand and we'll close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you as we looked at this transition of these miracles in 8 and 9. And then the instructions and the empowering, Lord, of the 12 apostles. Where we read in the New Jerusalem, these men that you called that we read about today, their names are going to be on the foundation of the New Jerusalem that will be our home. And these names we will become well acquainted with. And so, Lord, as we um, give you this night, we do pray for um, this week and that our faith as a result of the study tonight would just help us grow a little closer and stronger to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.